and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, I wanted to kick off this episode by saying a massive congratulations to all of the winners at this year's Horse and Hound Awards in partnership with NAF. The awards ceremony at Cheltenham Racecourse will have taken place by the time you listen to this episode. And uh, there was such a wonderful lineup of winners this year, from top riders right down to the unsung heroes. You can read all about them in next week's magazine. That's the issue dated the 8th of December. Our interview this week on the podcast is with Irish dressage rider Abby Lyle. She talks about making her championship debut at the Worlds this year and looks ahead to the London International Horse Show. This is a really big one for me because I always said like this was one of my ultimate dreams. Like to me, this is like, you know, Olympics kind of vibes. I'll then be chatting to our news team about new studies in equine flu vaccinations and attitudes to obesity in horses, as well as a change in competition clothing rules. Finally, veterinary equine behaviourist Dr Gemma Pearson gives us her insight on training horses who don't like to stand still. So I think it's really useful to teach horses to go and stop off of pressure from the lead rope. The horse that stands still as a habit is calm as a habit. So, without further ado, please pull up your girth and let's get started. Hello, I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor at Horse and Hound, and I'm excited to be joined today by Abby Lyle on the Horse and Hound podcast. Hello. Hi, Abby. How are you doing? <laughs> good. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Abby, for anyone who doesn't know, is an international Grand Prix dressage rider who rides for Ireland. She made her championship debut earlier this year at the World Dressage Championships in Denmark with Geraldo and is set to make her London International Horse Show debut at the XL Centre later this month. Abby, this year's been a complete whirlwind for you, hasn't it? It has. I feel like, <laughs> yes, that's the best way to describe it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk first of all about the very exciting news that you've been selected to represent Ireland at the London Hall Show uh, in London in a couple of weeks' time. What does it mean to you to be riding there? This is a really big one for me because I always said like this was one of my ultimate dreams. Like to me, this is like. Uh, you know olympics kind of vibes yeah uh, you know it's one of those shows you've been to watch so many times and you've always wished it was you um <laughs> and <laughs> no i that, that was always my one of my biggest goals um Aww. yeah so i i've been i'm not gonna lie i've been feeling a little bit sick today about it <laughs> <laughs> but but then I, i'm feeling i'm i'm super excited obviously and like can't really believe it oh my gosh how exciting um obviously it's coming quite quickly after the world championships in august which i mean must have been the highlight of your career so far just just tell me a bit about that whole experience and what it was like oh it was just so wild and so fun and so emotional and it was everything i hoped it would be um you know the way sometimes you know people say that you get you know, you work towards a goal and it's never as good as you imagined. Well, that was yeah. not the case. <laughs> that was not the case. <laughs> I loved every minute of it. And yeah, the and thing is, I find that also 
you know, doing it even from a competitive point of view, you know, it did. It, I didn't have like the ideal test. It didn't mm. go as well as I would have liked it to go. But it, it's I, I've come back. So now I like I knew what I have to do. I know what I need to do to make things better. Yeah. Um, you know, and and so much more full of, well, you know, motivation. And I just feel like it like more confident, actually. I know what to expect now. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm dealing with. Yeah. Yeah, you know because I mean? you haven't actually been riding at international Grand Prix level for that long, have you? Compared to no. some riders who have been doing it for years and years and years. It's only been sort of in the last sort of year or so that you've really got up to that very, very top level. Um, yeah. I know that it's, it's, people say it's a bit of a sort of shock to the system sometimes. It is. It really is. Because as well, like, it's not only that... Um, the logistics of everything is so much more overwhelming, especially mm. like post Brexit and all that. But we don't yeah. need to get into that. <laughs> but you know, it's like it's a, it's a lot. It takes a lot of your time, but also like the actual time in the arena really takes a lot more out of you than I I thought. Because you kind of think, oh, I ride lots of horses every day. It's fine. <laughs> but actually, like you're like yeah. But when you get in there, it's like you know seven and a half minutes of really intense focus it's a real killer that you just don't like and you've got to be so on it so um yeah but I I I absolutely love it oh my gosh I love it so much (laughs) (laughs) and of course seven and a half minutes of intense focus that's double uh double the time if you've got two horses at that level which of course you do um you mentioned Geraldo your your top horse he's known at home as Artie isn't he yes and you're the one Farrell uh, yes. Tell us a bit about, well, both of them actually, and, and sort of what they're like, um, what their personalities are. Oh my goodness. So I'll start with Farrell. He's on my mind because <laughs> I actually, like, uh, I was about to say, don't repeat this. We're recording, but repeat this. It's fine. I have no problem saying this. I literally rode him the other day and was like, I wish I was taking him instead because <laughs> he's feeling so, so good at the minute. Um, he's always been like a quirky, sharp, like quite a tricky horse, probably the most tricky horse I've ever ridden by far, but he's so like easy to ride the movements on. Um, and so like riding him around the test is like a joy ride. (laughs) The only thing is that he has the ability to be very frightened (laughs) and like if if something sets him off, he will Mm -hmm. just like turn around and be like, I'm out of here. So that's difficult to navigate sometimes (laughs) um but uh, but aside from that like when like you can ride him around the test and be like medium canter we are going for it and then like collect come back you know you can really ride every movement on him so it makes it so much fun like that um and then in the stable he's a bit like we always say he's like hard on the outside like you'll come over and he'll give you a grumpy face and then as soon as you start like caressing him he's like he just like melts like butter um so he's like a little bit like everybody loves to give him a cuddle because it's kind of like you feel like he's not going to be up for it and then he's like yes give me love (laughs) um so that's farrell and he's owned by fenella quinn whom i train and she rides for ireland as well so that's super cool very cool Um, and then Artie is my 
like the love of my life and I love them all but it's it's just it's a little bit different with him because it does feel very like I hate to say soulmates <laughs> it sounds so cliche but I literally like I would do anything for any of my horses but it's just a little it just hits a little bit different with Artie yeah um and I think because he's mine it's like I don't know but I just feel like we are like <laughs> we're best friends <laughs> but we kind of are and he's just practically perfect in every way like yeah he's so he's a gentleman he's lovely in the stable he's lovely to ride he's safe but he's like reactive he's hot to ride but he would never ever do anything naughty you could put a child on him he is honestly like the perfect like he is a bit of a teacher's pet like he probably <laughs> he'd probably be a bit annoying if you knew him but he'd also be like he'd be good at everything but he'd be really nice about it like you couldn't like you couldn't hate him a, yeah exactly he'd be like such a nice guy um <clears throat> so yeah that's oh, that's the voice amazing i mean two very very special horses um i wanted to wanted to ask you you know let's go back a little bit you're not actually from a horsey family are you how did you get into dressage in the first place and what was it that led you well what was it that led you to sort of where you are now and obviously moving to uk um a few years ago now to pursue a dressage career um, yeah, no, completely non-horsey family, if anything, heavily discouraged. <laughs> um, my parents didn't want me to do it because they were like, it's too expensive. We can't buy you a horse. Um, in the end, they did. They, the first horse my mum bought me after I passed my A-levels cost £580 and he was a little horror. <laughs> but yeah, they really didn't want me to do it. They were like, it's too expensive. But I was I was just obsessed from like such a young age and I persevered and persevered and persevered. Where did, where did you actually learn to ride? Was it a, was it a riding school? Yeah, a riding school called Burr House, um, like in Northern Ireland. And I kind of like... You know, I had I had Bart, <laughs> that was his name. Um, I, I got Bart. I, I did have, I had a really cool pony on loan because I basically used to like linger around the riding school um, <laughs> and be like, hey, can I like round the livery section and be like, can I muck out your horse or can I brush your horse? And then this amazing family took, I just imagine, pity on me and um, they loaned me a pony who was actually like amazing. I think he may have done like a pony European eventing or something. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah, like he was really, really cool. Um, That was Jack. I was about 11 or 12 when I got him on loan and he used to ditch me and jump the jumps himself when <laughs> we went show jumping. Uh, anyway, sorry, I digress. And then, I, yeah, I was just always, always keen, but I didn't really get into dressage until I was in my kind of, I was in my 20s and I was working in retail and I just decided I wanted to be a groom. Uh, I think I was like 24 and I saw an ad in the farm week and I went to work at a yard which was actually a point-to-point -point yard Okay. and I worked there but I always, it was actually, I have to say, it was Andreas Helgstrand on Blue Horse Matinee and I remember watching him on YouTube and just being like, Oh my God, I'd never seen anything <laughs> like it. So then I was like, I need to do dressage. Um, and then I went to work for a show jumper uh, after the point to point yard. I worked for a show jumper, but who, she was really keen on dressage, like really interested. And she kind of would have, you know, taught, like tried, God love her. I 
don't think it ever happened but I remember her trying to teach me like shoulder in and leg yield um and yeah I th- and then there was somebody who had was on that yard that had been to Talland and okay. she kind of said like I should go there so when I was yeah 24 like August in, in 2009 so I was 24 I went to Talland and that was it I arrived I knew I'd never I knew I'd never go back home I knew I was, yeah. that was it and that that really was the start of that that journey for you wasn't it yeah yeah and i was just blown away like i I was just like there was all like there was like dressage horses everywhere (laughs) and like the horses that could do fly like i arrived at talent i didn't know what a flying what a clean change was i didn't know what piaf or passage was i didn't know what tempi changes were like i just didn't know anything but i was like obsessively keen like i would have done anything <laughs> <laughs> oh and of course talent an amazing place to kickstart that dressage journey but i know you've trained for um trained with carl hester for a lot of your time in the uk it's a lot of years now isn't it um, yeah yeah and i know being closer to him was actually one of the reasons for your recent move back down uh back down south from northumberland wasn't it yes yeah I don't think there's a single rider in the world who wouldn't love the chance to train with Carl, but <laughs> yeah. what is it actually like to work with him, to train with him? What makes him so special as a trainer? Uh, he just like, he has a really good way of like encouraging you. And, and perhaps if he has to deliver bad news, like you've done something really badly, he <laughs> delivers it, but he never makes you feel bad. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He doesn't make you feel like he, he keeps me on a really good level because I I'm never I don't need to be pushed. I don't need to be told to try harder. I'll always be trying. So if anything, if I make a mistake, it needs to kind of be like, oh, well, you know, it, it doesn't need I don't need like battering for it. So he's yeah. got a really good way of being like, oh, that was so crap, but it doesn't make me feel panicky or bad or anything like that and he just there's no one no one can like prepare a horse like him like he sets you up to succeed in whatever movement you're about to do and it's like you get sprinkled with this magic dust and then away you go and I want to ride like that as much as I possibly can (laughs) oh fantastic and I mean was he a huge help to you um out in Herning in the summer or in the lead up I imagine so yeah absolutely yeah he was there um and he helped me like um you know we had a few days training before Mm. and then um he worked with the Irish team trainer um so it was it was really really good yeah amazing and I wanted to to ask you about um sort of Irish dressage as a whole it's been on sort of something of a journey over the past few years with some ups and downs but I feel as though the four of you that were out in Herning um yourself Alex Baker Anna Mervelt and Sorrel Katsko as a team, you definitely gave the impression of there being a lot of really exciting things to come for Irish dressage. Is that how you will feel about about the future? Yeah, so much so. And I think everyone is like really, really hungry for it. And just like, we're like chomping at the bit, like ready to go. There's like good riders, good horses. So it's literally just a matter of like getting us out there at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, obviously, next on your on your schedule is London. But going into next year, what are your what are your aims? What are your goals? What are you sort of, you know, planning into your the next 12 months? Um, We're going to do a couple of abroad shows like early on in the year next year. 
and just get out there indoor shows and then we're like you know full steam ahead for the europeans and um i expect there will be probably several people listening who might know your name from well primarily from social media because you are you're very active on instagram in particular you've got quite a following um how did that actually start sort of being sort of active on social media and taking it a step further than a lot of people do um i think I'm very, very blessed with my Instagram because it's never, it seems to have never become anything like too much to handle, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like it honestly started, this is so sad, but it just started like with me being a bit lonely, like (laughs) riding on my own. And I just started like chatting into the, you know, into the camera on the stories and, uh, but also just like saying things about like how my rides were actually going. Yeah. And it just built from there and people seem to enjoy it and it just kind of grew. And I'm so lucky. Like I just seem to have like the most hardcore supportive followers. Like they're so lovely. They are so hardcore. <laughs> they're so like, they're so keen and so lovely. And it's like a genuinely really nice environment. Yeah. Um, yeah. I really, I feel really, really lucky for that. So, yeah. Because I guess social media is not always such a lovely environment. Um, well, in our sport and in others, it does have somewhat a mixed reputation and sort yes. of brings with it both good and bad. Um, for, I mean, for you, what sort of role does it does it have to play within the horse world? What positives can it bring? I think where the positives come in is people sharing their, not only their good times, but their bad times as well, or any of their difficulties, because that was one thing that I always wanted to say, you know, oh, I've struggled with this, because when I heard other riders saying they struggled, I was like, oh my gosh, you struggle with that too? Cool. Um, (laughs) And that made me feel so much better, because I think there's, it's, because the essence of dressage is that you're supposed to go in the ring and the whole idea is that you make it look easy. You're supposed to make it look like your horse is happy to be doing it and like willing, harmonious, and it's supposed to look easy. It's then you, you, you watch that like representation of someone doing a good test and you think that that's what it looks like all the time. And it's very unlikely that it does. And I just think if, if that's shared around, it does give people encouragement that on the bad days where you feel like you feel like, you know, I even say I get on some days and I feel like I don't even know my body. I feel like my legs are everywhere <laughs> and I feel like I can't sit. And I just think we all have that. And I think when you share that around, it does help other people because I think the one thing that most people need to do in their own training is just be more consistent and keep going. Right. Um, so I think it's good for that, definitely. And I think it can be a good support for people. Mm. Um, I think it can be a fun place and like yeah. it can be funny. Like I like to like make jokes of things and like have a <laughs> bit of a laugh. But then, yeah, there's another side to it, obviously, where it can be not so good. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I guess there's a, a almost a, a fine line between showing the reality of the situation and you know knowing knowing when when not to i suppose um yes 
and I, I feel as though, yeah, I feel as though you are you are very, very popular on social media for a reason. Um, and it's great because you definitely do show the the realities of being a top dressage rider. And I think you're right that everyone, you know, it's, it's valuable for people to see that. I know that you also take your fitness very seriously. Um, the last time that we properly spoke back in the summer, you told me you were aiming to run a sub 22 minute 5K by the end of this year. Yes. And I wondered how that was going. <laughs> For anyone I who actually, doesn't know, 22 minutes is very fast to run 5K in. <laughs> um, I actually did it. In, Have you? <laughs> yeah, well, I did it, but it's not official because I <laughs> wasn't doing like a park run or something. So it's not, it wasn't official, but I did it in her, in her, well, not in Herning. I actually did it at Blue Horse. Um, oh, wow. We stayed at, yeah, we stayed at Blue Horse a couple of nights before we went over to Herning um, and I, felt good and I went for it and yeah it was 20, 21 50 something amazing so I did it but then of well course it yeah thank you but it doesn't count <laughs> and like a good portion of it was was somewhat downhill so that's fine it doesn't but matter. it is fine because then <laughs> if, you have, if you go downhill it means you've probably gone uphill at some point so <laughs> <laughs> I like your thinking <laughs> yes exactly so yeah I did it I was just actually just had a PT session just before I came ah, on the phone. Oh, fantastic. I know that you, yeah, you do value your fitness um, really, really highly. And I know that you've talked a lot about how it's impacted your riding. Just tell us a little bit about why, you know, why you got into taking your fitness as seriously as you do and the impact that that has had on, on your dressage. Um, I think it's taken me like a number of years to fully understand myself. That sounds so deep. <laughs> But I'm a highly strong person and I'd love to, I'd love to not be, but I am. Like I, I would get very anxious. I'm a terrible worrier. And about just in September, 2021, I had a session with my, my sister's like an amazing runner. Um, <clears throat> anyway, I had a session with her PT who is a former Commonwealth athlete. And okay. the more I actually was doing things that, you know, cause not, no one's really gonna be like, hey, you wanna be a better dressage rider? Start like doing hard cardio and running. Yeah. But it actually, for me, just like, just pushing myself like that, it's, it's what I love. Like mm. I like to leave my comfort zone and I am a thoroughbred. I need a good lunge. <laughs> I need to be sent out on the lunge every day <laughs> or else I'm too fresh so it's a very good way of putting it it is like it's I just think that that is who I am now don't get me wrong I don't start every session like you know I'm not like jumping about but my my mind is and I just mm. find the more I've like really done more physical things it sets it's better for my mind so where I feel like it's helped my riding isn't even so much that yeah I'm way stronger and way fitter but it's what it does to my mind that is the for me the the best the most positive thing about it yeah uh, I just I just feel like as well when you do think and people ask me you know oh what should I do fitness wise and I just say anything you like anything mm. that makes you feel good but because for me if I if I push myself trying to either run a session or you know in my circuit with my trainer or whatever that gives me uh, the fact that I do that gives me confidence and yeah. then the more confident you are you can bring that onto the horse that's where I would say and I I think it's give you know anything you can do to just keep yourself you know like after I've done a session I feel so much more aware in my body yeah you know like I know 
when my I can feel myself on a horse. I can feel like, oh right, I'm sitting more on my left bum cheek yeah. than my right or oh yeah like and I, I actually the more i've become <laughs> this sounds really weird as a concept but the more i've become strong in my upper body the more i've been like you you need to be really careful because you can't pull you've got to like give you know it's like actually made me i think softer in okay. my arms because i feel like now i'm like oh you can you know you can do many a press up you mustn't have hold <laughs> With too much vigor here, um, <laughs> so it's made me really think. Like all the time, I'm like, "Oh, you got to keep them arms relaxed." Yeah. So yeah, it's been yeah. And that's just an example of the sort of focus that you were talking about earlier that you need in such huge quantities to um, to ride a Grand Prix test. And I yeah, I imagine having that kind of mental calmness after a run or a workout or a, a yoga session or whatever it might be really helps with that kind of that focus and getting in the moment that that dressage really does require. Yeah. Absolutely, because you've just got to be like, you know, I, I remember I was in Compiègne and I did, <clears throat> I was on Ari, I did the best line of twos I've ever done. And I landed after the ninth two and I thought, yeah. And because I just stopped focusing for that one minute, he did an extra change. <laughs> and then that's that's a mistake. And I was like, you've that is literally how much you've got to be thinking of like the balance and everything, every stride. You can't yeah. let a single stride like pass your... Because as well, like that's the thing, by the time you get to that level, they have to be so reactive that they, they should react to you kind of like relaxing or moving or something. That's the whole point. So you've got to be like laser focus. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's it's brilliant that you found, you know, found a way that works for you to actually achieve that focus. Um so yeah that's wonderful well abby thank you so much for joining us on the horse and hound podcast today it's been a complete pleasure having you on the show and best of luck at the london international horse show thank you so much thanks for having me <laughs> So I'm joined now by two of our news team. First of all, our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are you, Eleanor? I'm good, thank you. Just had a bit of a week of where my big mare has decided to start jumping the electric fence. It's because the socket's broken and they know, don't they, straight away. Um, although it doesn't seem to make any, you, you would think if she can jump it, it wouldn't matter if it was electrified or not. But you're just like, yeah, there you are in the wrong field. <laughs> <laughs> Always a bonus. <laughs> Sometimes I see horses when I'm like driving around, which have got their electric fence just lying on the floor and they're still in the right part and they haven't like entangled themselves in it and injured themselves. Whereas we always seem to have horses that as soon as the electric fence is not like yeah. super taut and high, they're straight through it. And I'm like, how does everyone else manage it? I know. Mine does not manage that. As soon as it's off, straight into the wrong place and guaranteed wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> the trials and tribulations of electric fencing. And we also have with us Becky Murray, our senior news writer. How are you, Becky? I'm good, thank you. Um, I'm currently dog-sitting for my mother and um, hopefully you're not going to hear two little dash hounds in the background saying hello. Um, I've got her two plus my two schnauzers and all I can say is I can only imagine this what it feels like to have four children or four Shetland ponies um, based on constantly telling someone to stop it and usually calling out the wrong name. So um, yes, they're keeping me very busy. <laughs> oh gosh, that is uh, quite a lot of dogs to be keeping <laughs> under control. <laughs> what have you been up to, Pippa? 
I was off work last week. Regular podcast listeners will note that I uh, left uh, left the news team in the tender care of Gemma Redrup. But um, I was off work because I'm involved in an amateur theatre company and uh, producing a show which opened last week. So yes, all went all went well. More performances this week, but yes, it was nice to have the week off and be focused on that. Oh, brilliant! That sounds great. Oh, and don't listen to last week's podcast because there may or may not have been tales of going to shows with mud on horses. I haven't listened to it yet, but I will at some stage. Eleanor, you know how I feel about this. If you have a grey horse, you have to brush it. <laughs> this was the bay. <laughs> I don't know if that makes it better. We're going to move on, listeners. No one wants to hear about how Eleanor doesn't brush her horses. <laughs> More importantly, you have been writing about equine flu vaccinations this week, Elna. So can you kick off by just reminding us why why vaccination and rule changes around vaccination hit the headlines earlier this year, this autumn? Yeah, so to try and, because this was a sort of an ongoing thing, and to try to condense it, in August there was, um, it was announced that there may be a, a shortage of flu vaccinations because there was a logistical problem. Uh, the manufacturer in Europe had a logistical problem. And so there was, everyone was working on it to try to make sure that the the horses who were most vulnerable to equine flu were protected. Uh, and as part of that, some of the governing bodies that had required six monthly vaccination changed to uh, to allow yearly vaccination and some of the ones that are, that had to have annual vaccination gave an, an extra couple of months and the thinking behind it was that the horses who are out competing were more likely to be mature horses who had had a history of vaccination and so would have more immunity and then the younger and more vulnerable horses could have the the available vaccinations so then the uh, the vaccination shortage was remedied and there was there were more outbreaks of flu in the this country so that's sort of the background <laughs> to, to this story mm. and now the, the sort of new news is that there's been a new report published about vaccination and what does that say yeah it's it's the 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 main message is that owners must be encouraged to vaccinate horses every six months for for the best protection and they've sort of looked into in great detail into sort of the history of mandatory flu vaccination which came in in most competitions about 40 years ago um, and that did have an effect on the scale and the numbers of outbreaks but outbreaks including the one we had just a couple of years ago have shown the epidemic potential of flu equine flu even in a vaccinated population. Mm. And you also spoke to the British Equine Veterinary Association President David Rendell about it. What were his thoughts? Yeah, so the the British Equine Veterinary Association President David Rendell said that, you know, the flu is a serious condition, potentially fatal. And as he put it, the science is very clear. Horses are better protected if they're vaccinated every six months. Mm. And finally on this, do we have any indication about whether the governing bodies are going to start imposing those six monthly vaccinations again? Yeah, so the FEI, um, it was a temporary measure that they extended it to a year. Uh, they will go back to requiring six monthly vaccination from April. British Dressage was another one that, um, and they've said from January, they will go back to strongly recommending six month vaccination. Mm, okay, well, we'll see whether the other governing bodies follow suit on that. But um, strong advice there coming out that that's the best thing for your horse's welfare. Anyway, thank you, Eleanor. Becky, you've been looking at a new study this week as well. This one's about equine obesity. Where was this published and what did the researchers do? This was a study published by researchers at the University of Liverpool in a veterinary journal last month. 
and it's looking at human behaviour change and equine obesity. The researchers took data from interviews with owners and professionals and discussion forums, and this was then analysed using a scientific model called the COMB. Now, this model looks at three components being a person's capability to do something, the opportunity to do something, and the motivation to do something. Okay, and what did they find out? What did the study show? Well, a few different things came out of this. Um, some of the main points were that most owners that had taken part did have an understanding that excess body fat is a health risk to their horses. However, because owners struggled to identify how much fat was on their animals, whether that was trouble with fat scoring, for example, then many owners had not made management changes to reduce excess weight and until something like laminitis had occurred already. And the study highlighted owners were aware of different strategies to help with weight loss and management, but they found it hard to then identify how to implement these measures. So Mm. this kind of comes back down to the capability, opportunity, motivation thing. And if you're looking at implementing a track system, for example, an owner might not then have the opportunity to implement it, say, if they were at a livery yard. Okay. And you spoke to the lead author of that study, Tamsin Furtado, about some of the sort of take-home messages and the practical steps the horse world can take following this. What sort of thing was she talking about? Yes, Tamsin made some really good points that really we've all got a, a role to play here, you know, whether it's an owner with an obese horse or somebody that doesn't have an obese horse. It's, it's not just as simple as saying that owner needs more education. She suggested that more could be done to support yard managers to support their liveries and create environments where horses can be turned out without too much grass. Or she suggested friends can sort of club together and help support each other and play that accountability role, which can be effective in human behaviour change, you know, in human scenarios. And she also said things like if you want to share something on social media, just making sure that what you're sharing is factual and accurate and really just, as I say, that everyone can do something. Mm, That accountability part is a bit like having a gym buddy, isn't it? You've got to turn up else they'll be on their own. Yes, exactly. Things like that. All right. Well, thank you, Becky, for telling us about that one. Eleanor, finally, you've also been writing about a change in rider clothing rules for British Riding Club competitions this week. What's this all about? Um, Yes, this is one that actually is one of those things that's very simple, but could also be really important and significant. It's um, British riding clubs have announced that from now um, in all competitive disciplines people are allowed to wear black or navy breeches um, and they can still wear white cream and beige if they would like to but they have said the addition of black and navy is intended to help female riders feel more comfortable and confident to perform at their highest level while they're on their periods. This is an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's something that's Mm. sort of been pushing through in other sports this year. And there was a lot of talk around it with Wimbledon this year. And I think that Wimbledon actually are slightly relaxing their all white dress code with this in mind. So interesting to see it coming through to the horse world as well, Eleanor. Yeah, very. And and one thing the British Riding Club said is that they do expect other governing bodies to follow suit. So we will see. Mm. Well, we've had a big post bag about this uh, this subject since you wrote about it online last week at Horse and Hound with uh, some some varying and interesting views. So uh, you can read more about that in the magazine next week in the 8th of December issue of the magazine as well. Thank you, Eleanor. And thank you to Becky for joining us today, too. (laughs) 
Dr Gemma Pearson is Director of Equine Behaviour for the Horse Trust. She is a qualified veterinary equine behaviourist who splits her time between seeing clinical behaviour cases at the University of Edinburgh's Equine Hospital and ongoing research on this topic. So in this episode, we're going to talk about horses that are difficult on the ground. So horses that are bargy or pushy if you're in America um, and horses that don't stand still very well. And I think a lot of this comes back to training the basic responses from day one. So a lot of the time people will say, oh, I walk and my horse walks and I stop and my horse stops. But this can lead us into problems. So in that scenario, what's happening is someone says, "Okay, I walk and my horse starts following me. So the horse's cue to walk is your legs moving. When you stop, the horse's cue to stop is your legs stopping. But let's think about what happens. So you walk, your legs move, horse follows. You tie the horse up and walk away. Your legs have moved, but you now don't want the horse to follow you. So that can be a little bit confusing for the horse. Or, you know, the horse follows you until you go up the ramp of the trailer. And then the horse doesn't follow you anymore. So what's the next thing people do? They then put pressure on the lead rope. And the same thing people say, I stop and my horse stops. If the wheelie bin has just fallen over behind your horse and it's jumped forward, you know, you've probably been knocked to the side anyway, but the next thing you do is you put pressure on that lead rope and that horse hasn't, you know, that horse is not looking at your body language at that point in time. So I think it's really useful to teach horses to go and stop off of pressure from the lead rope. So from a halt, I will stand still. I won't move my feet but I'll put gentle forwards pressure on the lead rope. And as soon as the horse goes to step forwards, I release that pressure back to neutral again. So there's no pressure on the lead rope. My hand is just underneath the horse's chin. And of course, you then have to start walking with the horse. You'd need go-go gadget arms to be able to maintain, you know, stand still as the horse walks. But the key thing is that the horse's cue to step forwards is pressure from the lead rope. And the same thing to stop. So... Teaching stop, the easiest thing to do is to first of all teach back up because the same muscles that are involved for stepping back as it is for stopping. So if you're stood still, you can face the horse so you can actually be watching what the hooves are doing on the front feet and put light pressure backwards on the lead rope. And as soon as that hoof lifts off the ground and starts to go backwards, release the pressure. The timing is so crucial to train the correct response here. Because the horse then starts thinking, oh, the way to make pressure go away when the pressure is backwards is to step back. The way to make pressure go away when the pressure is forwards is to step forwards. And once the horse understands that, you can then lead them forwards. You put backwards pressure on the lead rope and the horse will stop. So now if you're in a scenario whereby, you know, you walk, you're walking along, the wheelie bin falls over, the horse shoots forward. Before you're even aware that this has happened, the horse has got to the end of the lead rope, put pressure on it and they've stopped. And it's a little bit of a similar thing with bit pressure. You know, they have to stop as soon as they get to that bit pressure. The same thing if you want the horse to walk forwards. If you have trained the horse to walk forwards habitually from light lead rope pressure, that will really help you out when it needs to. So I'll tell you a scenario. Um, my partner at the time was a farmer and he rang me up. I was working in the hospital at Edinburgh. I was on call. And he said, one of the young stallions, a three-year-old stallion has cut his leg. I think I need to bring him in to see you. Now, if your partner's a farmer and he said that the horse has cut his leg and it needs to come into an equine hospital, it definitely does. You know, this is not going to be a superficial cut. 
So I said, fine, just put him in the trailer and bring him into work. I'll I'll look at it there. We'll stitch him up, whatever we need to do. And he said, but he's never been in a trailer before. And I said, no, but I've taught him to lead correctly. And he went, yeah, but he's never been in a trailer. We've never led him in a trailer. I said, no, but I've taught him to lead correctly. So he arrived there and I said, okay, how was he loading? And he said, yeah. He said, I walked him up to the ramp and he kind of went to stop and I put pressure on the lead rope and he just stepped forward and then he was in the trailer. Now, obviously that's not ideal. We want to practice before we take horses on journeys, but in this scenario, we had to get him up to work. So then when people talk about horses being bargey, people think it's because they don't respect you. People think it's because they're naughty. They think they're the boss. None of that is true. It's simply because we haven't taught them to lead correctly. So if you have a bargey horse, just teach them to go forwards, to stop, to step back. And then, you know, when you're leading them, if they start to accelerate a little bit, just slow them down again. And you'll know if this works or not, because the horse shouldn't change their head and neck position when you give a lead rope cue. With bargey horses, what happens is they start to go faster than the person wants, often into the person. The person puts pressure on the lead rope and they raise their head in the air or they flex their head and neck or they bend their head and neck round to the side and that is their response to lead rope pressure so just by training them to immediately slow off of light pressure these horses just stop being bargey and then the final thing really is teaching these horses to stand still unless you give them a cue otherwise so i said before you know if you teach the horse to follow your legs and then you tie it up and walk away that's quite hard for the horse it's even harder if you just put them in a trailer because they'll want to follow you out again so I teach all of my horses to stand still and again I'll face the horse I'll look at them and I'll look at their hooves particularly and I might take half a step back and if the horse tries to follow me I'll step them back to where they started again and give them a scratch and then I might take half a step back if they don't follow me I go in and give them a scratch and I'll build that up until I can walk all the way to the end of the lead rope and the horse doesn't follow me. I may then put the lead rope over the horse's neck if I'm in a safe enclosed space and walk all the way around the horse and the horse doesn't follow me. So they learn to stand still unless they are asked to do so otherwise. And the advantage of that is a horse that stands still as a habit is calm as a habit. And again, when we talk about bargy horses, they have a high level of arousal. Whether it's excitement or stress, their level of arousal is too high. And that's why they start pushing into people. So teach them to stand still as a habit means they're calm as a habit. Teach them to lead off of, uh, to step forwards and back off of lead rope pressures means they're really light. And then they just develop their own self-carriage for leading correctly. So if you want to see some video examples of this, if you go onto YouTube, um, we'd film the Don't Break Your Vet series through the British Equine Veterinary Association. And we have a couple of videos on there on leading horses correctly, using pressure release or negative reinforcement and teach them to stand still that you may find very useful. So I hope that's useful. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Gemma. And for all of your insight over the past eight weeks, it's been really great to hear from you. We're actually going to take a short break from our regular weekly episodes now on the Horse and Hand podcast. So we won't be back next week as usual. But in 2023, we'll be launching a new monthly podcast, which will be released on the final Thursday of every month. And we'll also be bringing you various event specials and advertorial series through the year. So do watch out for our first monthly podcast, which will be released on Thursday, the 26th of January. Thank you for joining us today.
The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.